This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out their READ app for easy access to research personalized for you and calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Also, you can find a list of references for today's topic in the Read app at qxmd.com apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Suzanne McMurtry-Baird. I am the Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. I'm joined by my partner, Dr. Stephanie Martin, our Medical Director. Today, we are going to discuss a case study on sepsis and septic shock. First, I would like to just kind of give you an overview of some of the concepts that we're going to talk about today. This is a postpartum patient and postpartum admission diagnosed with sepsis and septic shock, a diagnosis of acute kidney injury, an adult ICU admission, and we're going to discuss the ICU model of care and patient management. Let's start with a little bit on the patient's history. This patient was a Gravita 1 at 38 weeks, presenting to labor, had a first stage labor of 11 hours, and a very short second stage of labor at one hour, resulting in a spontaneous vaginal birth and an episiotomy. On postpartum day five, the patient presents to the emergency department with a chief complaint of increased pain in her buttocks, and this had been going on for about 24 hours, and she took her temperature that a.m., and it was high, over 100.4. So she presented to the emergency department and was examined and diagnosed as status post-vaginal birth with synergistic necrotizing rapid progressive cellulitis. Infectious disease was consulted with an extensive cellulitis over both vulvar areas with areas of breakdown on her buttocks bilaterally over 10 centimeters. This area was very indurated. Her labs, white blood cell count was 31,000 with 3% bands, and her heart rate was 130 to 140s, and a temperature on admission was 103.2. So I think this is a good time to kind of stop and talk a little bit about what's happened so far. And as we go through this case, we'll be pointing out some things that are really characteristic of sepsis or should make you suspect sepsis. And and we'll talk about the multi-system organ dysfunction that happens as a result of a, of a, of sepsis or, or septic shock. So starting with this patient's white count, you know, she presents and they obviously drew labs on her. It's 31,000 with 3% bands. Now that significantly high white count tells you that this patient is mounting an incredible response to um, a presumed bacterial infection. Now, whenever you see a white count like that, obviously you're, you're very concerned about the possibility of significant infection, but it also tells you that she's got the ability to mount a white cell response to, to infection, which is not a bad thing. You also see the 3% bands. Now, 
bands or a left shift indicate that these white blood cells are being forced into the circulation to do their job before they're fully mature. It's like child labor. They're, they're forced to do what they're, what they're not quite ready to do. Um, so they're not going to be as effective. But as you see these higher percentages, these higher numbers of bands, it tells you that the infectious response is um, overwhelmed and or becoming overwhelmed. And so it's not able to allow these white cells to fully mature. Now with a white count as high as 31,000, a 3% band count is pretty significant because 3% of 31,000 is a much higher number than 3% of say a white count of 10,000. So that tells you that she is aggressively trying to fight this infection, which is a, a good thing. Now sepsis happens when this response to the infection gets out of control and leads to organ damage. So while this is a good initial response, the key is to be looking for, is this going to get out of control and are we going to end up with end organ dysfunction, kidney, neurologic, lung, et cetera. Now let's look at her pulse. A, a pulse of 130 to 140 is never normal. And it wouldn't really surprise us to see a patient with a temperature of 103.2 have a high pulse. That, that's not unexpected. But in a patient who's potentially septic, you're also very suspicious of volume depletion. And if you'll remember, we have our favorite formula, cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. As the volume goes down, you're going to expect the heart rate to go up in order to maintain cardiac output. So you can have both things going on here. You can't just assume, oh, she's febrile. That's why she's tachycardic. Additionally, you know, we know that febrile patients lose more volume because of the increased metabolism, et cetera. And a potentially septic patient, you'll hear us talk about this over and over, they get leaky vessels from that endothelial damage and they lose fluid. So it's completely reasonable to think that this patient is volume depleted and her tachycardia is not just related to her temperature. So this patient is admitted to an adult ICU, and this particular ICU model of care was open. So let me explain that just a, a, for a minute or two. So an open ICU means that any physician can manage uh, and be the managing physician in the ICU. And a closed model of ICU care would mean that an intensivist assigned to that ICU would be the managing physician. So again, this one was open and the attending of record um, was the infectious disease physician that was the admitting physician. So that can be a little bit different in your hospital. And it's uh, from a nursing perspective, it's always you need to know who you're reporting, you know, out uh, abnormal assessments to and who is the managing physician. So this patient was started on antibiotics, um, and 12, about 12 hours after admission, blood cultures were obtained. So if you're familiar with management of sepsis, so first thing you have to do is suspect sepsis. And if you suspect sepsis, then you're going to be looking to implement the hour one bundle. And the hour one bundle is very, very simple. Anybody is able to do this. You do not have to be an intensivist or in an ICU to start the implementation of the hour one bundle. It's very simple. You're going to draw blood, which includes a lactate level. You're going to culture everything that you think could be a potential source of infection. Um, and you're going to give antibiotics, ideally within an hour of the patient presenting. And then you're going to be volume resuscitating the patient if she's hypotensive and trying to manage her um, 
or prevent hypotension if you can. So fluids, labs, including lactate and cultures, and antibiotics. Those are your goals in the first hour after you suspect sepsis. But if you never suspect it, then it's going to get delayed. So this patient getting cultures um, so long after admission, that, that's a bit of a delay. And ideally, that would happen uh, within the hour of her presenting. Yeah. And then I think that we need to talk about her vital signs too, and and how she's responding to that initial management, especially in the first hour. We, you know, she came in with a heart rate of 130s to 140s, um, but that sinus tachycardia persisted. And something that we haven't talked about, this patient was hypotensive as well. And that was persistent. Um, in the first few hours and, and up even through that 12 hours uh, when her blood cultures were uh, obtained. So a little delay in in management of that and, and recognition that, that this is the components of sepsis and, and in needing management. The other thing is looking for organ um, issues or organ involvement with sepsis. And the organ uh, that was involved in this patient from the, the admission was her oliguria. So they put in a Foley catheter, and this patient was oliguric, less than 30 milliliters of urine output for two consecutive hours. And so they treated her oliguria by increasing her mainline IV fluids to about 150 mils per hour for about three hours, and then they also gave her 25% albumin administration. Um, so, you know, in pregnancy, and, and this patient would still be under the pregnancy hemodynamic um, clinical picture, that then this is still under volume resuscitating for even an adult uh, patient in that one-hour bundle just by giving her just 150 an hour of uh, normal saline. Yeah, typically you're going to be bolusing, you know, 30 cc's per kilo uh, and then seeing how the patient responds. So this is, you know, really demonstrates this in this first 12 hours of this patient's admission, even in an ICU, that there was really a lack of understanding that this patient is septic, potentially in septic shock and needed to be aggressively managed as such. So then what happens, Suzanne? So the infectious disease admitting physician left town, and the uh, now the management was turned over to an OBGYN. Uh, Stephanie, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but um, this was a generalist OBGYN, not an MFM being managed. Yeah, I think this comes down to, you know, who has the expertise to take care of critically ill patients? And um, if I had been involved in this patient's care, I think first and foremost, you need an, um, if you have access to maternal fetal medicine, you need to be consulting a maternal fetal medicine specialist, even though this patient is postpartum. But I would also include um, con consulting with um, an intensivist. I mean, this patient is, you know, flirting with septic shock. Um, we'll see here in a little bit what actually happens, but um there's a really a lack of understanding. And as we say, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And this patient is critically ill. She's in an ICU, but they're not managing her as if she's critically ill. So I do think they needed to have more consultants. Um, even if the OBGYN is going to be the admitting of record, this is really outside the scope of a general OBGYN. This patient is in is at risk for septic shock and needs to be consulting other experts. And we'll see what happens. And, and you can see why I say this was outside the scope. Now, there may be some OBGYNs who are very comfortable with a critically ill patient. But as a general rule, 
OBGYNs are going to be needing to get additional consultations with either MFM or an intensivist or both, even postpartum. Thank you. Um, You know, and even as a nurse, from a nursing perspective, we get consults uh, from other uh, nursing specialties as well, including ICU. So, um, you know, I know generalist OB nurses would not feel comfortable in a, with a patient with shock uh, unless they had ICU training and, and they had some specialty uh, consultants. So I'm going to continue by looking at her vital signs. So that evening, this patient, her vital signs presenting 93 over 57. Now her heart rate is 123. Now, the respiratory rate is not elevated, which we would expect in a, in a patient who had a fever, who was septic, her respiratory rate would be ve- higher than 20. So uh, just pay close attention to your respiratory rates in these patients as they're one of the early warning signs also for a patient. Um, and this patient still pres- had oliguria, even after going up on her IV fluids of 150 per hour. She did not ever receive a bolus, but she received also the 25% albumin administration dose. So that should be pretty it, giving her a good volume expansion in the beginning, but we would also anticipate in that patient that it may leak out and through the endothelial damage 12 to 24 hours later. Going back to the evening, though, she continued to have oliguria, not just in volume, but she also now has dark, concentrated urine. That's also another non-invasive assessment of intravascular volume status that we would want to look at the ability of the kidneys to concentrate the urine. That would mean that the patient could still be in an in a pre-renal um, failure, but certainly not an intra-renal failure at this point. So the physicians notified of her abnormal vital signs, her continued oliguria, and that the urine was dark and concentrated. And the physician ordered a 500 mil a bolus of crystalloids. And now the patient is also complaining of nausea and vomiting. So Zofarin was given. She continued to be hypotensive in the next hour vital signs. Now her pressure is even lower at 87 over 53. She's still tachycardic. And now her pulse oximetry value has gone down to 94%. And before it had been in the normal range above 96%. Her temp's coming down, but now she has no urine output. To summarize uh, and continue to summarizing her vital signs, this patient remained hypotensive, tachycardic, and oliguric every hour that the nurse checked on this patient throughout the night shift. She informed the OBGYN physician every hour. And then she also informed an anesthesiologist, even though an anesthesiologist was not involved in the care at that point. She got an order to flush the Foley, and she flushed it with 30 milliliters of um, saline and returned 30 milliliters of saline. Yeah, I mean... When you look at this and you see documentation of significantly abnormal vital signs hour after hour after hour, you know, it's kind of hard to look at. It's kind of hard to hear. Um, The nurse was notifying someone every time she documented an abnormality, 
Um, but there was a, a lack of action, which likely indicates a lack of really understanding of what was happening with this patient. But this patient was in shock the entire night. I mean, her pulse pressure was anywhere from 20 to 30. Her blood pressures were 70s to 80s, over 50. She was tachycardic. And um, you know, clearly being under resuscitated. This is a patient who needs volume. And if the volume does not rapidly improve her blood pressure, um, then she would be a candidate for vasopressors to bring her blood pressure up. And again, you know, like with the white count, the high white count, that's the body doing what it's supposed to do. The kidneys are doing what they're supposed to do. The kidneys are supposed to hang on to that volume when it when they recognize that the volume status of their of their body is low. So that's why she has low urine output. It's the kidneys trying to protect her. But ultimately, if that's not fixed, then you're going to end up with damage, which then can be confused. And you, you don't recognize that the, the decreased urine output is now from damaged kidneys, not just because the tank is empty. So there can be, you know, it, it can get worse if you don't intervene. So we still have an opportunity to intervene, but the intervening is not really happening in a timely manner here. It's true. I mean, the kidneys are so also susceptible, not just to volume, but the hypotension. So both of those um, two uh, d things in, in her hemodynamics, both of those values in her hemodynamics are going to decrease perfusion to the kidney. And, and initially, you may have a pre-renal insult, but then you're going to end up having an intrarenal insult as well. Yeah. And so, you know, this organ, this multi-system organ dysfunction is well described with sepsis. And so it's more obvious with the kidneys because she's not peeing that they're at risk. Um, but let's talk about her O2 sats for a minute, right? So um, those low O2 sats could be due to a number of things and may be due to a number of things. Um, first of all, it could be a perfusion problem. If this patient is so significantly volume depleted, her pulse pressure is low. She's not really perfusing her extremities well. They may be cool, maybe mottled, you know, whatever. If she doesn't have good cap refill because the tank is empty, you're not going to get a good waveform and you're going to have, you're going to measure lower O2 sats peripherally just from a perfusion problem. But this patient is also certainly at risk for lung injury and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. You can listen to our podcasts on this. We've talked extensively about respiratory issues and cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. But this patient, you know, with sepsis and, and septic shock, you end up with diffuse endothelial damage. All the capillaries are damaged and that leads to leaking. So fluid can leak out. And if their patient is hypoalbuminemic, which you'll see later what this patient's status is, but you can assume that every postpartum patient has low albumin levels and low oncotic pressure, so they're going to be more likely to leak fluid out into the third spaces. Now, this patient also got an infusion of albumin early on, which, as Suzanne said, will bring initially bring volume into the vessels if there's volume in the third space to be pulled in but then it can leak right back out later into the third spaces and pull fluid with it. So albumin is not the primary recommended treatment here. Volume is. So um, let's see what happens with her now. So she is at uh, a ICU day number two now. And general surgery is consulted because the necrotic uh, area uh, is really spread. It has spread some. It's very hard and indurated. It now involves the entire perineum. So the plan is to do an IND up into the pubic area and um, drain and uh, 
get some of that tissue um, that has been necrotic uh, released. Yeah, and this is source control, right? So if you've got a patient who has an infection who is septic or with septic shock, then you've got to get the source of the infection and deal with it, or it's never going to, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be significantly delayed or unable to actually deal with it. So this is source control. Yes. So she's returned from the OR. They put a central line in her during the OR procedure, anesthesiology did. It was a right internal jugular. And at the same time, they were also floated a central venous pressure line so they could watch trends in her CVP. They placed an arterial line because she remained hypotensive. And they also put in some drains uh, in her perineal area. During her operative procedure, she remained hypotensive and oliguric, um, and that persisted after the OR. So that evening shift, her CVP was around zero to two range. So uh, normal, we would want to see this in a septic patient up around six to eight uh, millimeters of mercury. Uh, I know, Stephanie, you wanted to comment on the CVP uh, piece of this. Yeah, you know, we're not using CVPs as much anymore in managing um, volume status for patients, but I think it's still an important reference point for this patient. So CVP is essentially an, an estimate of the volume of fluid returning to the right side of the heart. So it's supposed to indicate like how full is the tank or how empty is the tank. And there are other ways we can measure this a little bit more reliably and accurately, you know, non-invasively even like, for example, with echo. But this CVP is substantially abnormal. So if you're, you're basically measuring in, incredibly low pressures on the right side of the heart because there's very little volume, the tank is so empty. Um, so if you're going to measure these things, you need to be prepared to act on them. So, uh, you know, I always say don't ask the question if you don't want to know the answer. So they asked the question, they measured the CVP, and then they got the answer, but really nothing was done about it. This tank is empty. She needs volume and lots of it. And that's manifested with her hypotension and her tachycardia. That tachycardia tells you, you ha she has a normal, healthy heart that is responding and desperately trying to maintain her cardiac output. Yeah, the other reflection of her lack of volume is that hypotension, and she's using a lot of oxygen. Her pulse oximetry value is between 92 and 95%. And like Stephanie said, that could be from multiple uh, causes, either utilization or uh, hypoxemia uh, because of a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The other thing that remains in this patient is that she's oliguric still. And, you know, we would need to start thinking about what labs do we need to draw to look for acute kidney injury and the type of acute kidney injury that we would anticipate. Because, again, this is another organ uh, system that may be failing due to the hypotension and the hypovolemia that we've been discussing. So they repeated this patient's white blood cell count, and now it's increased to 55%. And the same antibiotics were continued. I want to go over and discuss some of the labs. You know, these patients do get quite a significant number of labs drawn each day, maybe even each shift. So we want to watch trends in our white blood cells, and that's exactly what they were doing. Remember, when she was admitted, they were at 30 
one percent uh, or thirty one thousand or um, and then we now are up to fifty five thousand. And then the other uh, component of the white blood cell count and differential that we look at in a septic patient, not just neutrophils and and how high they are or what types of white blood cells that may be elevated, but those immature cells or bands that we talked about previously. On admission, they were 3%. um, And day one, they went up to 6%. And now with that high of a level at 55,000, they're at 4%. Other things that we want to consider are her hematocrit and hemoglobin. Does she have enough oxygen carrying capacity? And in this patient's admission, she went from a 39.4 hematocrit on admission to now on day two, her hematocrit is 47.8. That tells us the degree of hemoconcentration that this patient has due to the hypovolemia. Another component of the CBC are her platelets that we'll get into. Do you want to comment? Yeah, I wanted to point out, you know, a postpartum patient, it's not normal to have a hematocrit of 39%. So, you know, this patient was probably already significantly hemoconcentrated even when she presented and that 39% was the result of that. I mean, that's a very, that translates to a hemoglobin of over 13, which is highly unusual for a postpartum patient. So she was already volume depleted, hemoconcentrated when she came in. And this is just another, you know, evidence to that fact. So if you, if you know what you're looking for, it's very clear what was happening at this, with this patient when she first presented. Right now it's 47.8 and her hemoglobin is 15.5. She doesn't have the ability to make red blood cells that quickly. Um, so, and, and in fact, you know, you would expect it to be a little bit lower with the process and the pathophysiology of sepsis and septic shock. So her platelets uh, on admission were 162, still in the normal range, but then we start seeing some changes within the platelets. They became very large. They began to clump, which again uh, demonstrates that process of the pathophysiology of sepsis and forming platelet plugs. They become more sticky and uh, trying to repair the endothelial lining. And now we have a depletion or a low number of platelets at 143. Their sodium is another lab that we would want to to look at. And on admission was very high. It was, uh, you know, outside of the normal ranges higher. We would expect that in a hypovolemic patient as the kidneys recognize uh, a low volume status, their attempt to normalize the volume status is to reabsorb sodium. So less sodium goes out in the urine and it's reabsorbed into, and the serum then starts to have higher levels in a hypovolemic patient. Now on day two, her sodium is within normal range which means possibly that the kidneys are unable to reabsorb sodium and more sodium goes out in the urine. Staying with um, other labs that you would want to look at, especially for your kidney injury, is your BUN and creatinine. And the creatinine in a pregnant patient and postpartum patient is usually going to be around 05 
and any creatinine level getting up to 1.0 or higher is very high. And this patient was admitted um, at 1.0, and that continued to rise throughout, and now on day two is 1.7, so even higher. So her BUN is high, her creatinine are high, is high, and about a 10 to 1 ratio and we would then start looking at other labs like serum osmolality, urine osmolality, um, and uh, fractional excretion of sodium and urine excretion, uh, excretion of sodium, and trying to figure out which type of acute kidney injury that this patient has. And then another lab followed in our septic patients is albumin. In fact, Research has shown that the lower the albumin, the higher the mortality rate. And on day two, this patient's serum albumin is 1.0. I gotta, I gotta say, that's probably one of the lowest serum albumin levels I've ever seen in a patient. So her ability to hold fluid in the blood vessels is so impaired. So that is so concerning for this patient that we need to um, consider that as we give her uh, our crystalloids, that they're going to not stay intravascular very long because of the extensive endothelial damage that is going on in this patient. Yeah, and I want to echo that, you know, when you start hearing these labs with this profoundly low albumin and elevated creatinine um, and hemoconcentration, one of the common questions or feedback we get is, but if I give her volume, she's going to end up in non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Well, they don't use non-cardiogenic, but they say she's going to end up in pulmonary edema. So yes, that's very possible. But a couple of points there. First, you've got to intervene early. The earlier you intervene, the less likely you are to end up with all of these issues, these multi-organ dysfunction that then complicate your resuscitation even further. Second part is that if you don't resuscitate this patient with volume and get her uh, treat her shock, you're not going to be able to save her and pulmonary edema is going to be the least of your concerns. So don't be afraid to volume resuscitate your patients, especially initially, and then get them into an intensive care unit where they can be their status can be monitored more carefully. Unfortunately, this patient was in an ICU and all of these things were ignored and um, that I would like to think that having an intensivist involved in this patient's care may have, you know, potentially resulted in some earlier action or intervention for these, uh, this evidence of sepsis and septic shock. But um, unfortunately, this patient did not have those kind of interventions. We just continue to document significantly abnormals without um, making, ch- without reacting to it and improving it. So what happened to her vital signs from here, Suzanne? Yeah, so now we're at day three, and we're on the night shift, and this patient remains severely hypotensive. You know, we're talking 50s over 40s and 30s with pulse pressures of 10 to 15. So she is in shock. Her heart rate continues to be elevated. And now we start to see her respiratory rate decline and her pulse ox starting to decline, requiring oxygen now. She remained oliguric um, and then actually became anuric. Her art line waveforms were dampened, uh, and now she has, you know, cuff pressures of zero um, and unable to be able to even take a cuff, cuff pressure. So, again, reminding that each time the nurse called the physician, 
Um, and then the physician on the night shift, when they called, said, I'll, I'll be in in the morning. So the physician did come in in the morning and, and decided to transfer her now to a tertiary care center. Um, the key here is you have to find a tertiary care center that has an available ICU bed and is willing to take this patient. And is she stable enough for transport? So those are all considerations with this patient. Um, and and she does eventually get transported, but in such an unstable condition now, she's now been started on norepinephrine drip and has been titrated up and, and titrated up to where they're only to uh, obtain a blood pressure of 89 over 46. She remains tachycardic. Her skin is cold and mottled. Her pulses are weak to absent. And as we titrate that vasoconstrictor that's pretty powerful up in a hypovolemic patient, that is when she's going to start shutting down perfusion to all those non-necessary organs even more. And we start getting into some high mortality and morbidity. Yeah. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why we harp so much on following the hour one bundle guidelines, which includes volume resuscitation of the patient because there's absolutely a role for vasopressors and vasoconstrictors. There's, I don't want you to leave this thinking vasopressors or vasoconstrictors are bad. They're not. They just need to be used appropriately. So fill the tank as much as you can first. Uh, vasopressors are not first line. You can do them. I mean, there is a role for doing them in the first hour if the patient is getting volume and still shocky. But you don't do vasopressors without even trying to fill the tank first. This patient, it's very clear that they did not recognize just how volume depleted this patient was. And so once they finally recognized, I don't know what prompted them to finally recognize that this patient was in shock after she'd been in shock for so many hours, but then the, the treatment was not volume and pressors. It was just pressors. And, um, you know, that's just going to further cut off flow to organs and lead to more organ damage. Yeah, think back on this patient, her albumin was one. And so her ability to hold that volume that you are giving, even if you're giving, you know, 125, 150, or even if you're doing bolusing, she's going to require um, intermittent bolusing or intermittent increases in that volume because as you give her volume, it's going to leak out. So if you just keep pressing, pressing, pressing as that volume leaks out, then organ perfusion has decreased some more. So, and, and this patient was showing that. I mean, her pressure was 49 over 44. Her heart rate now is 144. Um, no temp. So it wasn't that her heart rate was elevated because of a temp. It's because of volume depletion. And her SATs are going down now. So she is even becoming more critically ill. So eventually this patient um, was accepted and transported to a tertiary care center. So you can imagine at the tertiary care center, they were just like, oh my gosh, you know, this patient is so unstable. And and she did, she coded an hour after getting to that transport center and, and she ended up dying of septic shock and multi-system organ failure. So uh, awful outcome um, that, you know, possibly could have been, um, prevented. Um, it's hard to say because there was so many hours and days of shock in this patient, but early recognition is the key. Early management, according to best evidence, which is our surviving sepsis 
um, campaign bundle and one hour bundle management is so key and essential. So I hope that that's your takeaway today um, in this tragic case that we can learn from on how to better care for maternal sepsis. Yeah. And um, if you want to learn more about sepsis, if we've got podcasts on all the topics around sepsis with respiratory failure, et cetera, um, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has guidelines uh, available on their website, survivingsepsis.org. But um, yeah, we hope that you have a new understanding and appreciation for your role in identifying the potentially septic patient. You don't have to be an intensivist. You don't have to be an ICU nurse. You just need to recognize the possibility and get the right people involved in the patient's care. The hour one bundle is very doable. Fluids, labs, antibiotics, and pressors if needed. So that any of us can do that right off the bat. We want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. And you can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Feel free to email us or direct message us for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the read app, qxmd.com apps or our website. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.